Welcome to Ms. Interpreted, her podcast of public relations and strategic communications, demystified by Kelly Fletcher and Fletcher Marketing PR. Change means being uncomfortable. And for everyone on DAA, and for everyone in PRSA, and for everyone in every corporation and agency, here's what you need to know. Study the past. If people say these issues are like civil rights issues to them, and I say it every day, that means we're willing to make sacrifice. And if we're willing to make sacrifice, that means there's a greater chance for it to become true. And if there's a greater chance for it to become true, you better get on board. Because your clients are soon, I'm telling you, as soon as next year, going to say, you can't walk in here with four or five white people. My client base, the people we do business with, won't let us do it anymore. We've been educated. We're afraid of being in the newspaper and having a picture of us sitting on a board or showing our leadership. We're working towards it, but our meeting with the people who are our, our consultants, you better have some kind of mix because we can't do it anymore. Hello, everyone. I'm Mary Beth West. I'm co-host of Misinterpreted, the podcast, Public Relations Demystified. I'm here with Kelly Fletcher, my co-host on on Misinterpreted, and she is CEO of Fletcher PR and Marketing in Knoxville, Tennessee, and Atlanta. And we are very thrilled to have join us today Mike Paul, a gentleman who already has a very strong reputation throughout the public relations industry. He is an internationally known reputation management executive with decades of experience having managed reputations for brands across the world. He is considered one of the top crisis PR, reputation management, and corporate communications, as well as litigation support PR consultants in the world. And among numerous acknowledgements throughout his career, PR Week, which is a trade magazine in our area, named Mike one of the top crisis communications counselors to have on speed dial. And I think we're about to find out exactly why, given his business acumen and certainly his public relations acumen. He was named among the top 100 thought leaders in trustworthy business behavior in both 2012 and 2013 by Trust Across America. And today, as we all know, as the world and as our nation grapples with issues of race in an unprecedented context of civil unrest in the wake of George Floyd's tragic death, many public relations professional organizations right now are grappling with issues internally within their memberships and certainly within their stakeholder groups. And it's it's due to leaders like Mike Paul who are speaking truth to power that these organizations are being forced to reckon with a lot of these issues and look at through the lens of systemic change. You know, the truth here is predicated on many organizations' persistent lack of action over the years in combating racism and failure to achieve diversity outcomes that, frankly, they've been promising and espousing and giving lip service to for years, decades even. So it's with some breaking news that we interview Mike Paul today on the evening of June 2nd. Mike resigned from his role from the Diversity Action Alliance, which is a newly formed PR organizational consortium launched in 2019, led and funded in part by the Public Relations Society of America, PRSA, as well as the PRSA Foundation, which has a mission that's solely focused on diversity. 
among other noted groups. And of course, the DAA, the Diversity Action Alliance, states as its purpose, quote, accelerate progress in the achievement of meaningful and tangible results in diversity, equity, and inclusion across our profession, end quote. Now, the Diversity Action Alliance, or DAA, declares that it stands for three specific diversity outcomes, recruitment, retention, and representation in management. Those are the three areas. So sounds like a very important initiative supported by the United States top and most noted public relations organizations. Yet, Mike Paul, our friend who's here today, a senior advisory board member to the DAA, or I should say former senior advisory board member, has chosen to resign. I connected with Mike yesterday, so glad that I did. He's graciously agreed to have a chat here to explain why. And please follow Mike at Twitter handle at Reputation Doctor or Reputation DR, certainly to follow him on Twitter. Mike, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to join us today. I know that you're already getting a lot of trade media calls, even as we speak. We'd like to know first, though, how are you and your family doing and how are you faring during this time of just so much discord? And, you know, what have these recent days been like for you, both personally and professionally? Well, thank you so much, uh, Mary Beth, for that question. And, you know, it really has two big parts. First, the pandemic that was happening as a traumatic crisis for everyone. And as you know, communities of color not just in the United States, but all of the world have been and will continue to be adversely impacted by the coronavirus. And we could talk a little bit later. I know you have some questions about that. Family's all safe so far. You have extended family, grandparents on one side, grandparents on the other side, young children. Some folks have health conditions that include cancer and heart issues, high blood pressure, all the, the big factors. Imagine coming back from a bout with breast cancer, for example, one of the members of our family, and finally getting to the six-month point where you're just getting back your strength, but you know that your immune system is not 100%. It was torn down. And the fear of hearing just with age you're in the vulnerability group, but then they started adding other factors like, oh, history of diabetes. Oh, you just went through a bout of cancer. Uh, stay in the house. So we've been dealing with that. At the same time, I'm dealing with a lot of crisis clients all over the world with all types of issues that are some tied to the pandemic and the civil rights issues and, and crises that are going on, not just here, but around the world, but also the traditional crisis issues that corporations have. Bad decisions bad behavior, fraud, litigation of all types, where there's a court of law and the court of public opinion. Regarding civil rights and what's happening right now, you know, a lot of the work that I do is stealth, but I can describe it this way. More than 90% of the civil rights issues that have happened over the last 20 years, I've been involved with in some way, shape, or form. I have been gassed. I've been thrown into a moving vehicle as I was working closely with FBI and DOJ in a past administration and to protect my life as tear gas was so powerful. And you've seen some of it in recent situations. But imagine where you can't see me. That's how much tear gas is. And for 48 hours, 
guys that are very powerful and well-trained in the FBI are knocked out of doing any work for 48 hours along with me and told the rest before we come back to any crisis meetings that we're going to have. I'm fine. There are many families that are going through hell. I've been talking about the pandemic and civil rights issues with all types of people, with all types of backgrounds, especially strong white male leaders who dominate business and our profession. I get on conference calls and I'm the only one, sadly, at times to say, excuse me, how are we having a discussion about a firm or or an agency or a global advertising conglomerate or a Fortune 100 corporation? And for the last month and a half, you've heard the statistics, which is people of color and families of color are being impacted at much greater rates than others. But you didn't say, hey, Mike, how can we help our employees? Or you talk about whether you're going to get a branding hit or you're going to be sensitive enough in the way that you're still trying to make a win-win with corporate social responsibility tied to very important issues. You show the difference in being out of touch and not thinking as though it's your family, which Mm -hmm. it is. These are your employees. You're supposed to be treating them like family. Where are the fundraisers and GoFundMe for your own agency? Even if you only had three people of color working for you, mm-hmm. let me tell you some, and I had to wake people up. Let me tell you some of the issues that they don't feel comfortable to tell you about because you don't have that relationship that should have been established for years. Grandma needs to be buried. There's no money. But you want me to talk about working from home and whether I'm getting furloughed or laid off. Mm-hmm. My mom who's watching the kids is most vulnerable, but I don't have time to run out while I'm doing everything and watching the kids to even go down the street to get her medication or to get eggs or, you know, I don't know how to handle this. There's so much coming at me. Right. Why are you assuming that grandma lives in another house? She doesn't. She lives in one dwelling place with everyone. Mm -hmm. Oh, you forgot from slavery till still being the first person in your family to graduate from college. That doesn't have wealth to have two or three homes within a family of 15 people. How do you not know that? Mm -hmm. If our greatest strength in our profession is understanding stakeholder relations, and which means, which I teach my three-and-a-half-year-old right now, putting yourself in someone else's shoes, if they're upset, or you hit them, and you have to apologize, the example for my three-and-a-half-year-old, oh, I didn't think of that. The age of reason is seven. My three-and-a-half-year-old goes, oh, I didn't think of the other person. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Daddy, for teaching me that I have to think of the other person. You're a CEO of a Fortune 100 company. You're the CEO of an advertising conglomerate. You're repeating and seeking to get praise, even with what I call some people that are considered sellouts, who are people of color in HR or DE, diversity, equality, and inclusion issues, or the most senior Black, Latino, Asian, or woman or whoever they could consider diversity to be in the room, they don't speak up and go, no, you don't get it. You have to do more. You can't just repeat, for example, five or six CEOs of advertising conglomerates just put out in the past 48 hours. The same bullet point mission statements and affinity group information that you've had for 10 years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was interviewed about that recently, and I said, it doesn't cost a dollar to regurgitate rhetoric like that. It doesn't help anybody because they know there's affinity groups for gays and white women and 
Latinos and blacks and, and Asians. So why would you even put that in a memo that we care for you and feeling for you with this? You're not even in the same office. So your goal should be to have a stronger affinity and heartfelt versus headfelt communication to your people through a computer or a text. Even if it's a Zoom meeting, you've got to have some kind of empathetic messages. Most men suck at emotional intelligence. I use that phrase in every meeting I've been in for 20 years. And I usually frame it with, you're my client, so I'm going to come at you with some direct speak here. I circle your heart for a minute. I'm going to say something you're not going to like. We usually stink at emotional intelligence, but it's the biggest and most effective tool in the tool belt of not just our profession, but of human life. Mm -hmm. You can't have a traumatic emotional crisis, is the next thing I say, and not have a traumatic, anxiety-filled, and emotional solution to what you're talking about. Boilerplate doesn't work. Throw that one out. We have a zero mm -hmm. tolerance for racism and discrimination in our company. Okay, guess what? They don't believe it. The world has it. It comes into your office. It We're in the middle of places burning to the ground with pain, and then you do that. That's just mm -hmm. absurd to me. And I have to have the patience, but still the passion and the intelligence and the experience and the solutions to help them through it. But I want to shake them verbally so that when they go home, they go, well, that was, that was kind of in your face. Yeah, it was meant to be. The wake-up call. It's not business as usual. So, Mike, I received yeah. an email yesterday, just yesterday, from an organization and all they were talking about was economic inclusivity. And I thought it was just so off message and tone deaf. I actually emailed the organization. But we want to back up here a bit and would love you to tell our audience how you got involved with the Diversity Action Alliance in the first place. And why were you interested in that role? So thank you for that question. To answer it full, I got to back up and give you a little bit of a timeline. So going back to the early 90s, I was a young executive that worked at two big PR firms in the early 90s, Burson Marsteller, which at the time was the number one firm in the world. And I was taken out of Columbia University out of grad school into a management training program, the first of its kind, led by my now deceased, may rest in peace, mentor, Harold Burson. Picked five people out of hundreds who applied for this thing, and he handpicked them, and I was one. Only black male in the group stood out. So all the headhunters knew me. Before my first day at work, I was on a list, right? Watch this guy. I then became an executive at the number two firm in the world at the time, Hill & Knowlton. Uh, I then had a client, MCI, that had an IT division that rebuilt the 911 system for New York City before 9-11, years before. And they asked me to come work for them, and, and I did, and I became an executive there. Then I started my own firm. When I started my own firm, I decided to get very involved with diversity and inclusion issues. For more than 25 years, I've been involved. And I was also hired by the four A's, which I remind anyone who thinks that they're schooling me on diversity in our profession. Well, Mike, you know, maybe you weren't there. I said, maybe I've been doing this for 25 years. Maybe I had your boss's boss's <laughs> boss as a client in the mid-90s when there were class action lawsuits 
when they were having hearings in the New York City Council because they were headquartered here in New York City. And they were wise enough to say, I could subpoena you to come and testify. There were congressional hearings. This is when the federal government and New York City government were asking how many senior executives of color you have. And some of them were saying zero. Zero. And by the way, diversity is not a new issue. Diversity has been a major issue with our clients, Fortune 500, Fortune 100 companies, since the late 70s. And by the 80s, they were making progress. What they weren't doing was holding us agencies and consultants accountable. And trust me, there are some major corporations now that you can't walk into a meeting with five white guys today. Mm-hmm. They'll just go, oh, time out. They don't want to be on the record because their stakeholders buy their stock, their board and their C-suite has as their head handed to them with other issues. It's not a PR issue. It's a global issue for them where they've had people who bought their stock say, I want to know what supplier diversity is. I want to know all the companies that you're working for. I want to see some more senior management of color coming in, other diverse audiences. That was a huge opportunity for white women in the 80s, for example, and still growing, and others. So when you say, and there were some language like that, even in DAA, and of course I was giving advice, don't do that. I don't care who said it. I don't care if they're black and they're sitting on the panel and they said it's wrong. We're not here about awareness. Everybody knows this is a problem. You're in this profession and you're even an intern who's 18 years old and you don't know that diversity, equality, and inclusion is an issue. That's a crisis issue. This isn't about awareness. This is about panels. This also isn't about only $1,000 checks. Six-foot foam, smiling. (laughs) That's cover-your-ass strategy, okay? Get over that. That's been going on for two generations. I have the data. I have the research. I found a memo in the files of my client going back to the advertising conglomerates that said Negro problem, 1955, solution, $500 scholarship to historically and traditionally black colleges. Now, that was a good thing because Mm -hmm. as a starting place, right, Mm -hmm. issue goes back that far. Mm -hmm. But what we shouldn't be allowing to happen is someone that we know still seeking to do that at almost that same amount today. So so do you feel like the Diversity Action Alliance was a big part of the mission was to really, as you have framed so articulately in terms of what the actual reality is, do you feel like that their mission was to bring along all of the corporate entities and certainly the agency entities as well that serve them into a much more accurate mindset of what the need is, like a real call to action? And is that what you were led to believe they were going to do? So let me answer that in a more fuller way. Okay. Diversity Action Alliance has some other big associations. So it's about eight associations that are coming together. Several of them are affinity groups. So they're helpful, but they're not the end user we're seeking to convince. Okay. The end user we're really seeking to convince is really in two silos. PR Council, right, which is a big, big industry group made up of the agencies, small, medium-sized, mm-hmm. and very large, global, the top ones, mm-hmm. are in one affinity group. And then the other one that includes agencies and corporate communication divisions is a very large organization called the Page Society. Very powerful group, a lot of money corporate books, okay? PRSA Foundation and PRSA 
with all due respect, even though it has some power, is not the most powerful groups. Those two groups I just mentioned are the most powerful groups. Why? Because you and I know that the average person at PRSA is not in a top 10 firm. It's usually somebody that's a freelancer or has their own shingle, and they need more help, and they want to network, and they want to learn. The average person that's not in our profession does not know that's what PRSA is. How do I know? Mm-hmm. Even though I'm not a member of PRSA, and there's a bunch of reasons why I'm not, personal decisions I've made, I have volunteered to help PRSA over the years in many ways. I've given speeches at various locations, very small towns around the country about crisis PR and reputation management. Sometimes 25 people are showing up, and that's almost the whole chapter representation. Small businesses, the local bank sponsors me to come in, and and that sort of thing. Those are great things, but what I'm saying is that's not what people think PRSA is. People who are external to our world believe that PRSA is the voice and the organization for PR, and it's not. So PR Council, Page Society, the heavyweights. And I emphasize that because in my resignation, there's a challenge. I didn't just say I'm gone. I will always work on these issues. Quite frankly, I'm more effective not within an organization. I have my own followers. I'm on national and international TV on a weekly basis. And a lot of people respect my opinion because I do due diligence and intelligence gathering, and I don't do it alone. I might stand alone. But I get my intel from civil rights groups that I've had as clients. I get my intel from people that are working within these organizations who are not happy. I get my information from CEO secretaries who go, you need to know about this. I have access to knowing. People have gotten on the phone with me from DAA and other industry groups and go, how do you know that? It's not important how I know it. Is it true? Are you going to do something about it? You don't have enough money for scholarships this year? Because of the coronavirus, I heard before they wanted to announce it. What are you going to do about it? What do you mean you can't raise three to $5,000? What are you talking about? That's embarrassing to you for you to even say that to me. You don't think I'm an educated man? You don't think that I have a passion for these young kids? You're going to tell that kid that just won a scholarship he's not getting it? You dislike your profession so much that between each of the organizations in just page and PR council, If they just each gave $100, you'd have tens of thousands of dollars. What are you talking about? Yeah, I so fully agree and passionately agree with that observation regarding this inability to engage at a financial level. The PRSA Foundation, I know they have a laudable mission, and I think all of the people who serve the organization mean well. I, I have no question about motives in that respect, but... I do have a lot of concern about the lack of metrics, about the lack of having set forth what about eight years ago is when the PRSA Foundation completely turned to diversity as its singular mission. They started that process without having basically put forth, this is what we're going to accomplish. Here are measurable, timeline-driven objectives This is how we're going to engage our stakeholders. This is how we're going to mobilize the 20 plus thousand members of PRSA to join with us to, you know, for this to be a cascading effect of everyone to be behind it and to be financially vested. But Mary Beth, it's even more research than that. And this is where pretend we're in a diversity training. The big umbrella isn't even that. Those are 
tactics underneath the big umbrella mm-hmm. of negativity and prejudice, and some would even say racism, that goes along with the things I'm about to tell you. So this is what I told all of them. I have gone to that dinner for PRSA Foundation for years. I'm in New York. I have been chairman of boards and raised a lot of money external to our profession. I know how to do it. Cancer foundations and others, a lot of money raised. But you don't see me as that. You see me as other. So I got to educate you about who I am and what others like me other educated professionals of color you might not know do. We're top at our game, but your mind says you're lesser than, even in our analysis of the problem. So let me tell you what I know. I know the PRSA Foundation was the dinner to go to every year, sold out, Yale Club, packed house, swan song speeches before it was switched to diversity, elder statesmen usually, not even women, in our profession, white men, their swan song before they retired, they did that dinner, they got an award. Everybody came from around the world for it, (laughs) and there was a lot of money, okay? There's a list of those who went every year and how much money they gave and how much it cost for a table and how much sponsorship it was. There was also a list of who was just giving money in general the PRSA Foundation because they wanted to get the award two or three years down the line. And one that would be ingratiated to the organization of strong white men who were getting that award. Then you said they switched about eight years ago. I was involved with trying to help them. I'm not even in PR today, but I said, I'll help. Seeking to get a free location for a dinner. I said, let me get this straight. The history has been the Yale Club. It is the place that's already branded as the place that this happened. Why are you switching it? You don't want to pay for the space? What are you talking about? Didn't you get the lists from the guys that were in there before you? Isn't that the first thing you would do? Wouldn't you maybe even give one of those guys the award for giving you the list? You want to talk politics? At least do that. By the way, one of those guys did get an award. Okay? Don't have to say his name. And then wouldn't you make sure that it's still a sit-down dinner because that's how you raise the most money. Don't do past hors d'oeuvres. So you got a free space. The air conditioning got turned off at 6 o'clock just the other year. It was hot. People were complaining about it. And worse, none of the powerful white guys came because it's diversity now. It's not about them. And they sent the kids, some of them college kids, to fill in the blanks Mm -hmm. there. But that event is supposed to be having speakers and awardees who are of the ilk of color who are peers to you. So show up. Don't believe me. Look at the evidence. Take that narrative and look over, since it's been switched, the difference between the two. The same thing with fundraising for DAA. I know what the issues are for all of your associations. I've been in most of them. You know what the singular mission is here, to hire more senior executives of color, period. That will change the culture. They will do your job. They're a peer on boards, running P&L. But your mind goes, no, nah, we're not really talking about that. We're talking about interns, entry level, and diversity really means lower level stuff. I'm not anywhere close to accepting that there's people that are qualified today who are equal to me to run a New York office or to be a CEO of a firm or to run the healthcare practice. And then I educate, and I still do this with some of the younger folks of color. You need to know everything. 
we need to share with you, and I'm, I'm now informally gotten over 50 professionals of color, some in our profession, some external, some lawyers helping, all pro bono, getting on calls, talking to each other. You need to share your contract when you were an EVP at a company so they know what it looks like. If you don't mind them seeing the amount of money, let them see that too. What kind of healthcare package did you pick? What kind of country club did you potentially get paid for? Your gym membership, a hotel overnight in Manhattan so you don't have to go back if you work until 11 to Connecticut and come back in. You Secrets that you don't know of executive life. But they'd see, they don't want that, but we're doing it now. And the kids go, whoa, I didn't even know about these other... What do you mean? There's a national practice head in each category of issues within PR? Yes. By the way, how many issues are there in PR? How many divisions are in a, you start at the top, not at the bottom, in a global top 10 firm, how many different jobs can you potentially have? And what are the different issues? Even when you're in college, you're not going to find necessarily all this on the website. You got to do some homework, but we can answer it for you. So when I talk about the profession and they go, yeah, you're a publicist, right? And I go, not a publicist. Actually, a crisis PR expert globally. We make more money than attorneys when I talk to them. Get out of here. What are you talking about? Sometimes double what you charge per hour. (laughs) Can't see that when they see this. Like, what? What are you talking about? Kids getting educated. Do you know that there's a national practice set for healthcare, for tech, for consumer, for crisis, for media relations? I can go on and on. There's dozens and dozens and dozens of specialties that all have a local in your city, sometimes regional head, then a national head, then a country head, but you don't even know about these jobs. They're not even mentioning them to you. These should be opportunities for you to strive to have those positions. The way that you're hearing now with the issues that you were describing before, that there are two different nations, two different cities in New York, the rich and the poor, right? Two different perspectives on life, right? That has been a theme for speeches for generations now that people, especially white people, are understanding that communities of color are living a very different life than you. It's the same thing in our profession is how I describe Mm -hmm. it to the young kids. Mm -hmm. And you have to do the homework to find out the truth because they're not telling you all the answers because they don't see you as an equal. But we will help you. That's what not mentorship is sponsorship. Sponsorship is different than mentorship. Most people get this wrong, that you not just help me get in every week you're there and helping me and planting a seed daily and weekly for me to become you. That's sponsorship. Yeah. Being in Tennessee and East Tennessee, we rarely even get applicants of color. But why would that? Probably because they don't know about the jobs or it's not presented to them or so we started hosting an intern of color every summer the new internship program so we have one or two and it has been so wonderful for us as a team and they've all been young women so far to be able to spend a summer with them showing them what we do you know taking them out to restaurants taking them to meetings with us so they see that you can do this, that this is something that is accessible to you. And one even changed her major to public relations because she liked it so much. And I'm going off on a tangent there, but I wanted to circle back to the question. No, this is good. As a small to mid-sized agency, what else can we do? Do you think 
sponsoring scholarships is the way to go? Or how do it's, we it's actually take some action? Because I see all these brands now coming out with statements. Yes, excellent question. So let me give you an example. Brands to start. making statements, but they don't say what they're going to do about it. So in 1993, my first year within PR, I used to work as an aide to a U.S. senator and a couple of state legislative officials previous to being in PR and previous to going back to grad school at Columbia. And he actually heads up as the president of DAA right now, trying to pull all these associations together. He's white. He's a leader. He's former vice chairman of Burson Marcello. His name is Pat Ford, and he's a wonderful man. And he's, to answer your question that you asked before, the person who asked me to get involved with DAA. We're still friends. We'll always be friends. Remember, his job isn't to be PR counsel or to be page or to be a corporate communications division or to be an agency. You know, He's retired from that now. His job is to be the voice that says, this is what we're asking for. What say you? And have all these different opinions. And my lawyer says I can't do this. Or ah, we don't want to use the word hire. Not his decision. It's others that were applying pressure to pull that stuff out. But as the figurehead for the organization, you still get feedback. I wasn't the only one giving feedback. Others were going, do you know how insulting it is to take the word hire out of this deck? I know, I know, I know. Got to push back and tell them, no freaking way. And I started talking from the beginning when I saw that. It, I'm not sure how long I'm going to be here. That's how important this is. You're not my client. I'm doing this pro bono. I got a young son, three and a half years old. There's no freaking way I'm going to wait 22 years for the day to him to go, Dad, I'm thinking about being in PR. For me to not take my time now, every time these issues pop up, his pictures in my face. And what I told Pat and others is tell them that. Mike's just angry. No, I'm not. I am focused. I am direct. I have my research. I have my intel gathering. I have people in your organization that tell me the truth. I know when you have a phone call behind my back. I know what you've called me. They look at me like, how the heck did you find out? Doesn't matter. What I'm representing with a little chip on my shoulder so that you understand that you should not be looking at me as other is, I'm good. And there's more like me. Does that make you afraid? Instead of saying, wow, I want to hire that guy. Well, thank you, but I'm doing my own thing right now. But help others. What you're really saying, and by the way, I'm an expert in body language taught by a former FBI operative, pretty good at it. So when I see, even in a Zoom call, you go back when I say, Hey, Mike, you know, how can I potentially improve things? I say, close your eyes. You told me about your daughter. She's beautiful. She's intelligent. Said, are you ready? Said, yeah. Imagine that my son wants to marry her. And they go, I said, when you stop flinching like that, then you're ready to see me as an equal. To hire and say, this is incomplete. How come there's nobody different than me in here? I don't want the same thought in every meeting and every conversation. So my answer to you and your small firm in a different way is love those young ladies like your daughters. And guess what? Very simple things like that I learned from Rachel Robinson when I was doing pro bono work for the Jackie Robinson Foundation. 
She has a 98% graduation rate of the people that become fellows in the Jackie Robinson Foundation. And I can assure you it's not because Jackie Robinson's a famous man and she's in a famous family. It's because mm -hmm. she gets it. So when they have a problem, they can call her at home. When they really have a family crisis, like the mom died and, oh, my God, I'm thinking about dropping out of college. Sandy, I'm sending you a plane ticket, and you're going to come up here, and you're going to stay with me in Connecticut. So look for it. It's coming through. It's digitalized now. It'll be in your email. I'll see you tomorrow. What? And over the fireplace and over dinner and over cookies at 10 o'clock at night, like family, she is loved in such a way when she goes back home to college, she's getting an A. Mm -hmm. And the mother who's sick and worried about her daughter, not just her own life, right? If they're sick or another family member is worried about the funeral, they go, she's going to be fine. We don't have to worry about her. Wow, what amazing love. So the answer is love. Now, what I tend to do in these kind of conversations, you can hear it in my tone, it's tough love. I was also brought up with that tough love. There's also a different part of me. I'm a freaking teddy bear, okay? I'm a bear. You can see that part. Anyone that really knows me, including my wife and my kids and others, and there's another part of me that says, hey, what can I do for you? But if you often are being dismissive and you don't even know it, seeing me as other, there's a great book written by Dick Martin, by the way, who was the chief communication officer at AT&T, about five or six years, I keep telling Dick, too early, written by a white man for other white people, mainly, about what being otherwise is. You can check it out on Amazon. Very important book. Everything you think the answer is that is different is not. Go deeper. Have the kind of relationships. I've had CEOs of advertising conglomerates and the top 10 PR firms say to me, Mike, you're friends with me. And guess what? My wife knows the way I answer that. Oh, God, what'd, what'd you do? <laughs> I, 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 I said, I, this is what I said. I said, you're not my friend. Sometimes at a Yankee game, sometimes over dinner, sometimes over breakfast, discussing issues, usually for free, helping out. Mike, you hurt my heart, man. You know, these, these are strong white men. that They don't have emotional intelligence as deeply as you'd want. God, that was harsh. What do you mean you're not my friend? I said, what's my wife's name? Where's my home? Where do I like to go when I'm not at my home and I'm out east? Where's my father from? You can't answer any of those? You're not my friend. Have you ever been in my home for dinner? Have you ever been to yours? Have I met your wife? Have I met your kids? You're my colleague. You're not my friend. And the reason why I'm emphasizing that is I'd like to. I had to tell one most recently, I've got a stepson that has special needs. I drive to the Jersey Shore every week to go pick him up on Fridays and Sundays, no matter what I'm doing. That's my job. I love him like my other son equally. It takes a weight off of our family for me to make that commitment. And when everyone else is like, ah, it's, it's kind of too sacrificial every single weekend, every day, I said, you guys are forgetting the other piece. You got to think from my perspective. That's also my quiet time with him guaranteed alone every week for me to build a different relationship one-on-one -on -one with him just with the travel and the pickup and the short conversation that he might give me before he falls asleep for a nap in the car. Mm -hmm. So you got to think the answer is to all of these things, 
most people stink at stakeholder relationships. Because if you were good, you wouldn't be doing the things you're doing. If you could close your eyes and think from there, whoever they are, your employees, people that you're fearful of right now, and try and think from their perspective. And by the way, whether you know it or not, subconsciously and psychologically in speech, they're giving you messages. You have to learn how to pick them up. How are you doing today? I'm okay. Are you going to pick up on that? Or are you going to just let it slide because you're busy? Oh, what do you mean, Sandy? You're just okay. Is everything all right? Uh, you know, my grandma's sick, and we're not sure if she's going to make it. And it was, you know, a little personal, but my parents were arguing over whether we could afford the funeral. That's happening in households right now. You can't look at those stats and not understand that. If she told you she's the first person in her family to go to college, what else does that mean in the type of support she might need? Treat her like a daughter. Treat her like family. Don't say you're here to learn what we do. I can't tell you in how many internship programs mm -hmm. and mentorships and sponsorships. And don't keep sending me only the black men, black kids. Even in our associations that we were just talking about for internship programs or mentorships, I said, let me guess. Yeah, I bust balls sometimes, but it's for a reason. Let me guess. She sent me a black kid from a historically black college. Uh, yeah. I said, there's nothing wrong with that. But ask my advice. Is that the best way for us to run the mentorship program? No. Mix it up. Put a freaking hat. Let someone that's a top Asian in our profession get the black kid from North Carolina. Let me get the kid from China who's an immigrant student or from Korea. Mix it up. Why? It's a two-way relationship. We're supposed to be learning from each other. If you're open-minded and really have a heart to help, Harold Burson was so profound in my first two weeks of working at Burson Marsteller, by the way, on day two, I asked him to be my mentor secretively. And we were having meetings. And he said, my God, he said, I, I've been closed-minded. I got to apologize to you. I said, what? He says, I'm going to get it as much out of this as you are. And think of that until oh, now. Yeah. This is a guy that's, he just passed away in his late 90s, right? He's almost 50 years older than me. Mm -hmm. And says to me, as I'm being a sponge to the Nuremberg trials, to how we started the number one firm in the world, to what the best practice approach to do in business. He's like, wow, you just taught me something different about the Caribbean through the example of your family. You just taught me how just from a stakeholder group that I'm labeling you that you only think a certain way and you're a highly educated man, period. And I'm not seeing your skin color right now. I was brought up in the South. That's different for me, he says. Mm -hmm. He told me a lot of things that were private at the time that I'm now willing to share publicly. He was humble enough to want to learn and always saw more value in me than I ever did. And when he heard that people weren't treating me well, sometimes I kept it to myself and he wouldn't even tell me, but I'd find out from others, somebody got to talk to you yesterday from Mr. Burson. About what? Oh, someone said such and such in the bathroom the other day? Ironically, what am I saying now? How'd you find out about that? Uh, <laughs> he's Harold Burson. He found out. He's got eyes on the walls. Yeah. It's his firm. Uh, that makes you feel like someone has your back in a work environment better than your grandpa, better than your dad, better than your mother.
better than your grandma. Mm -hmm. And it makes you want to put your head in your work and bust your butt for them because they care. Mm -hmm. That's the answer. That was a long answer, but that's the answer. No, I love that. And I was a Burson Marsteller and Conan Wolf alumnus from an internship in the 90s too. So I, I don't know if maybe we were walking some of the same hallways and didn't didn't know it. But Harold Burson was a Tennessean, he, a native Tennessean, as you know, from the Memphis area. And I actually wrote a blog post after he passed away, just talking about just an anecdotal experience I had with him as well. And such an inspirational figure. And I think I mean, he was at the pinnacle of the profession in more ways than one. And I think that he did set an example that was so important. But you talked about statistics. And I did share with you, Mike, yesterday, a little graphic that I had researched. If I may take a few moments of your time just to share it with the audience who's watching now. And it has to do with, with the composition of some very key leadership posts. The graphic, I was I posted it on Twitter as well under the PRSA statement letter that was sent out a couple of days ago, and it's starting to get a few views and a few click-throughs as I've seen, but basically it lists out every single actual chairmanship of power, the individuals who actually set the agendas, set the budgets, set the priorities, organizational priorities, and basically it says who is the National Chair of the Public Relations Society of America, a white man, President of the PRSA Foundation, a white man, Steering Committee Chair of the Diversity Action Alliance, funded by PRSA member dollars and the PRSA Foundation, a white man. PRSA's staff, CEO, and the highest paid executive in PRSA National, a white man. PRSA's staff, CFO, a white man. Actually, the same white man who also serves as CEO, so he basically reports to himself. PRSA's National Nominating Committee Chair, who wields significant influence over who gets chosen for future PRSA national board slots, a white man, chair of PRSA's grievance committee, who you would go to to register a complaint, a white man, chair of PRSA's international conference, a white man, chair of PRSA's honors and awards committee, who receive awards and accolades from the organization, a white man, PRSA national chair elect and the dually serving chair of PRSA's audit committee, a white woman. So there's, I guess, the diversity choice (laughs) in the litany. And again, there are other leaders, other board members of PRSA, other chairmanships of certain committees that the answer isn't a white man or maybe even a white woman. But these are the positions that set the agenda, determine what's discussed in board meetings, discussed who gets keynote slots at the international conference, They are the ones who decide where the money goes, where the money is invested, what gets funded and what does not. You know, I find it just uh, tremendously sobering to see this. And, you know, I'm just hopeful that we can see systemic change. And I guess as we wrap up our discussion here, I would love to have just a few comments from you about what is the call to action for the white men and the white women and, you know, those who are currently in leadership who really need to have an introspective look. So the general rule on every issue we discussed thus far, my professional opinion, is to pause, breathe, and look at the person who is different than you 
and open your heart, which might not have been the way you were raised, might not be the way you've treated people before just by ignorance or a lack of access even. And to know this from the bottom of my heart, we are family. And this even makes people uncomfortable. The origin of life is Africa. Do we need to go back that far? We're the same blood. We were ironically branded and taught a crazy advertising and PR campaign that we're different because we were in different regions when we moved away from Africa and went to this country and that country and things broke apart. We have different languages. All nonsense. We're human beings. We had a crazy thing that was thrown in between that nobody wants to talk about called slavery that affects everything like, why are you guys eating that food? To, what do you mean you're the first person in your family to go to college? You're an intelligent guy. You're different than the others. That's offensive. Know the history, know the future. Think about it in an educated, heartfelt way. Wow, what kind of advantage is it that my father went to college? Wow, what kind of an advantage is it that we've historically had a bank account in our family for over 200 years? Wow, what advantage is it of all the small things that I've been taught in my family that other families might not have had even experiences. When people even ask, oh, where'd you park your car? Some people say, I I never had a car. My family doesn't have a car. Oh, where'd your grandma live? Uh, My house. And that's not everyone, but be open to it being different. And see the value Deloitte and McKinsey did some amazing best practices approach studies that you see that I've mentioned all over the place. Just put in Deloitte and Diversity and McKinsey and Diversity. People are like, ah, I haven't read it. Not. That's where you find it. It'll pop up. It gives you the best practices approach, and many of which are coming from large corporate clients who've been dealing with this issue for decades. It's not new. We don't need more awareness. We don't need to have more panels that don't have solutions. We need to have some of the top executive search people of color come in and help us find good people when you say you don't know where to find them. You're paying for the white guys. Why wouldn't you pay for other executives of color? Especially when the research from McKinsey and Deloitte says when you do diversity, equality, and inclusion from intern and every level in between, including the board, you make on average, which means some make even more, one-third more money on average. What I've said, almost like in street vernacular to shake my clients, and some of them are very powerful men in corporate world, in the government world, guys, what that means in street talk is the only reason why you wouldn't do it, because you love to make one-third more money, right, as a CEO, the only reason why you wouldn't do it that would hold you back is prejudice and racism. And I know that sounds harsh, but you prove to me what other reason why you wouldn't want to make one-third more money. Study after study after study proving so. We haven't gotten more people like me coming into the profession. I just put a challenge out, like I'm digging out an eyeball to the DAA group 
to each agency and corporate communications division, no matter what your size, stop that excuse. Stop saying your lawyer's not allowing you to do it. You're the leader. Your lawyer gives you advice. You make the final decision. One senior executive, VP or above, of color by 2022. That's the challenge. Sign a pledge to it. And we're talking about PR, not PRSA, PR Council, and the Page Society. What you're really talking about, the top 50 firms or 100 firms in the country and the top 100 corporations. If each got one, we'd have hundreds of leaders of color helping everyone make one third more money or more by 2022. That is absolutely doable. And I'm going to apply pressure like a thumb on everyone's back, like an MLK of the industry if I have to do it alone. Thank God I have a lot of people that are saying, Mike, we'll help you any way I can. Thanks for being the person out front. Because I can't look at my little boy and say, I'm worried about you working in the profession. It was harsh for you. I wouldn't have picked a profession again if I had it. I don't want to be that guy 20 years from now. Every time I talk about it, the attitude you hear in my voice now is my son. Mm -hmm. And if we're thinking about loving each other like family, that's the ultimate message. Don't think there's some rule book. You got to have everything written down. That's the answer to the Tennessee firm. That's the answer to PRSA leadership. And... The challenge for everyone in PRSA is simply this. If you don't pay your dues starting in 2021 until, even if your affinity group is more white women, if for some, it's senior executives of color. For some, it's those that are in the military. If for some, it's those that are gay. If you're not getting what you deserve, the economic impact is important. And there was a question or a comment earlier about economics. It's not the only thing, but I can assure you, right now, it's one of the most important things. What can I do to help? I don't want just a sorry. I don't want you to black out your page on Facebook. I want you to help somebody to get a job. Mm -hmm. Because if you help them to get a job, especially senior people who are qualified in our profession, they can buy their own health care. Do you see them as equal? And are you willing mm -hmm. to each agency get one person VP or above of color into your org? Don't play games like, oh, I'll get a director level. That's an executive, right? I've defined what an executive means. By the way, in an agency, you can be a VP in five years, four years, some people, some three. This is absolutely doable. That's our charge. If that happens, we will be in the decision-making. We will be running PL. You will have better ideas. You will just become a better person. Because I'm going to learn more about you and you're going to learn more about me. Especially if you're open minded about being family. We got to stop getting messages like I get of an intern or an entry level person sitting in a cubicle alone, no friends, no training, and then on probation six months in. Yes, that happens. Yes, it's more than one person. Crying to me in their early 20s, Mike, 
you know, you know, my dad, I hope I can call you about this. I said, send me an email, your job description. They never gave me one. Send me what you're being measured to for your review that they're talking about. They never gave me that either. Now you're going to get schooled. Now I'm your dad. Put this in an email. Because you never gave me official job description, <laughs> and because you never told me exactly how I'm being measured for my six months here, if you put me on probation, I need to ask a lot of questions why. That's what you need to put in an email. Will they potentially fire me, Mike? If they don't get that email, they were on their way to do that to cover their butt with the way they're treated. But you're going to be an educated person and you're going to write back, no job description, no goals, no probation. I'm still open today for you to email my job description. I'm still open today for you to train me. One of the ways you could train me instead of getting angry at me when I ask these questions and you see me in the hallway is to let me go into your files. Let me see examples of work. I'm an intelligent person. I know that's how the white guys do it. Yeah, go look at my file on that crisis from two years ago. It's very similar. It's in healthcare too. What we don't want to admit is we do a lot of regurgitation in our decks. So that kid can learn a lot, sadly, of what we do versus a lot of customization. That takes time. And we don't always do that. We need more stories written about what I just talked about. The problems that are happening that are real life problems that people of color are going through that women are going through. Equal pay, hey, tough. Yeah, there's a range. Thanks for your incomplete data and challenging us on the pay gap. How does that person Marsh tell it? Strong women decided, true story. They let me in the loop. Hey, Mike, you're a crisis guy. What do you think of this idea? The top eight women in Burson are gonna challenge management about the pay gap. We've got some research. Said, Guys, look, you're also smart enough to know that every job description has a range, right? So it better be, you understand statistics, better be outside that range. Because if it's inside the range of, I don't know, $20,000, sometimes $50,000 for a particular title, they're going to use it as an excuse. Tommy's got more experience than you. Thank you for using Tommy as an example. But look, in our global managing director, it ranges from this to this. And there's a $50,000 gap in between. But keep working hard, and maybe you can make as much money as time. They got their butt handed to them, and then they felt so much pressure after they didn't win, most of them left the agency. These wow. are stories that need to be told. Mm -hmm. If we decide to not speak up and tell our stories, it's going to say the same. This is not being rude. This is not being inappropriate. This is being an advocate for what you know is true. And you have to be willing to make sacrifices, including potentially a job and the mortgage that you're paying and the entry-level job that you had because they're a big firm and they might blacklist you. If you don't, we're going to be where we are right now forever. We also have sellouts in our industry, people that should be strong in the positions that they have, that might be women, that might be of color, who are happy being the only one and being paid handsome. And they're cover for the people who are making the decisions. Hey, Excellent Sandy, can point. you on this issue for me? You're in the executive team, really counting on you for that. Or, Tom, you should call him back. You're black. I'm not going to respond to that question, even though I'm leading the group. We're going to have someone of color answer back. That's happening right now with my resignation. 
And guess what? I said, and, and I think I'm threatening them. I'm not threatening you. I say, be careful. I have the answer before I did this. I have a plan B, C, and D for how to make sure it happens. I'm a crisis guy. You don't think I'm going to have a plan for this? Other people are watching now. There's civil rights groups watching. There are others who are in organizations that are passing intel. There are old decks when you lie and say, no, that wasn't the goal. I got it right here. Do you really want me to get to the point where I got to release an old deck? I don't want to do that. Just say we'll do better. Just say we'll consider it. Just say we're going to do it. But trust me, if you try and lie and spin, this campaign has the answers already. And if you want to see us as other and challenge us, we're ready. I am very excited about what you have framed here because I think that it is going to get the attention of a lot of decision makers that have not adequately had their priorities questioned and challenged in this way. And please know that Kelly and I are also excited about pushing out this message as well among, and I think all of us need to be circulating these topics to be having more conversations, conversations that actually lead to action, exactly as you framed. Because without that, then we are just on a I agree. And well, and I just wanted to say, it's not just in our profession, it's in so many other, you know, in every profession. You've inspired me so much, Mike. I've just been sitting here making notes of, three or four things that we're going to commit to as a small agency to get more involved and to try to help with systemic change, particularly with first-generation college students and Black females, because we specialize in the women's market and marketing to women. And I'm going to make that personal commitment because of what you've taught me through this podcast. Well, thank you for that. You, You got a new friend here. Hopefully I can come down one day when I don't have to wear a mask and come see you. Please do. Please, yeah, please let us host well, you. We would love to, for you to come down, seriously. And, and let me add another piece of advice. So those young ladies, and of course you know I'm not a young lady, but I try and close my eyes and say, if I were them, what would I need? And I might not be asking. So in your community, there's got to be at least two to three strong black women, strong women of color that maybe even surprise them by mm-hmm. having a lunch with them when it's time or, or even through Zoom. And you reach out to some folks right there in your community who not necessarily in our profession, if they're our profession so much better. Sometimes it might be in academia or in business or nonprofit group. And some of the rules that they need to hear from a fellow woman of color are just not just about surviving, but thriving. And you might even hear, thank God you have the kind of mentor and sponsor like your boss that's allowing us to even have these discussions. There are places down here that don't have these discussions. There are places up north that don't have these discussions. But the more that we think about each other with the small things, telling you they go far. And I'm not saying that the folks that put out messages on social media and the memos that came from some of the leaders isn't in the right starting place. What I am saying is they're highly incomplete. And I also know that you don't have an ethical and moral leader of color whispering in your ear, no, you don't want to do it that way. Let me say this and this would be more effective. And believing them and trusting them. Because if you did, 
You would have never had that letter, for example, come out from the top five or six advertising conglomerate CEOs and regurgitate your mission statement and the affinity groups of color mm -hmm. and of diversity that you have. We already knew that. What is that? Right. Nothing. And if they're not saying it to you, they're feeling it and not saying it because they're afraid. How can we help? We're going to send you a survey. Give us your top three things that are affecting you and your family today. We don't want to guess. We want to learn. We do that on boards with non-diversity issues. Where's our show going to be next year? Let me get this straight. The 13 of us on this board are going to decide for the 500 people downstairs as we're going through a breakfast meeting as a board and are impressed with ourselves. A monkey survey for a couple of dollars sent in an email with the top five choices. Let them pick. By the way, if they don't like it, they, they picked it, not you. And we're wasting way too much time on it. How much money should we spend on it? Let them answer. They're your membership. Why is that in the, in the DNA of everything I do? My first jobs, professionally, external being landscaping and stuff when I was 13 through 16, was to be a young aide working for elected officials. Even at 18, you have to think that way. By the way, it's also the place to get some of your best PR people. Many of them have become CEOs of some of the big firms in the world. They started in politics. We're going to the small business group. Then we're going to the women's group. Then we're going to the black group. Then we're going to a Latino church. Then That's your average schedule working for an elected official. I don't care if he's on the city council, local mayor, congressman, senator. You think deeply of others. It's your job. Their only pay isn't their paycheck. Their only pay is reelected. And the way you get reelected is you fill what your constituents need. And there are many, many different groups in any political constituency. We yeah. should be teaching it. If you hate politics, still have somebody from politics come and talk to your staff. Still follow what's going on. Look at the news differently. Wow, they're talking about all kinds of stuff. What do they mean, the Congressional Black Caucus, who I really don't understand and I don't know who those people are? feel that they have an agenda now that's going to be more powerful going into 2021. Does that mean we're going to have new laws that could change all of U.S. life? Yeah, that's what it means. There's a wedge issue. They feel they have momentum. They feel that they can't just push them aside. It's an election year. We might have a new president. We're going to push for huge changes in police departments and the rules. You can't use anymore one of the things that are trying to get passed that will probably go through, an illegal hold. And if you're the most conservative, racist Republican from the South, they're going to hold it over your head until you vote for it, or they're going to vote you out. They weren't doing that before. There's leverage now. It scares some people. It's supposed to scare some people. Change means being uncomfortable. And for everyone on DAA, and for everyone in PRSA, and for everyone in every corporation and agency, here's what you need to know. Study the past. If people say these issues are like civil rights issues to them, and I say it every day, that means we're willing to make sacrifice. And if we're willing to make sacrifice, that means there's a greater chance for it to become true. And if there's a greater chance for it to become true, you better get on board. Because your clients are soon, I'm telling you, as soon as next year, going to say, 
you can't walk in here with four or five white people. My client base, the people we do business with, won't let us do it anymore. We've been educated. We're afraid of being in the newspaper and having a picture of us sitting on a board or showing our leadership. We're working towards it, but our meeting with the people who are our, our consultants, you better have some kind of mix because we can't do it anymore. That's true today. And you're going to see more of that in our profession in the coming months. What's also going to happen, there's a lot of layoffs. There's a lot of people losing their jobs. A lot of them are also women and people of color. There's a judgment going on as to who should stay and who should go. That's always tricky. If you're unethical in the way you're doing business, you've got to be unethical with the way you make cuts. Cuts are an easy way to try and get your balance book together. It's not through hard work and selling and sales and services, just letting people go. We had a CEO of the number one firm in the world only three weeks ago say, there is no way that anyone's going to get laid off or furloughed through pandemic. And he just laid off 390 people. And for people that I care about that work in his organization, including the CEO himself that used to be my neighbor on the Upper West Side, I say directly to them, as you just married a wonderful Latino woman, you better get on board when it comes to issues of color. It could kill your business. And when you make promises, you should have never made that promise. It was a poor leadership decision. Mm-hmm. I heard somebody that's a friend of mine there go, oh, come on, Mike, you're being too harsh. No, I'm not. You told the world, you're no better than that. You say, as of now, I don't plan on letting anyone go. I don't know what's going to happen in the future. I wish I can give you a better answer. But my mind and my soul and my heart wants to hold on to everyone I can. And then if you got to make a decision three weeks later, then you say why. But when you say it's never going to happen, that's a rule from politics, from like the Roman days. You don't say yeah. that. Yeah, it's a, it's a read my lips thing, right? <laughs> it's, 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 it's about a thousand years older than that. Yes, yes. And yes. the answer is, don't make promises you can't keep. Right, Biblical. right, right. Even back to the tree with Adam and Eve, it's old inside. Right. He knew better. There was a little bit of hubris in that answer, like, we're not held by a holding company, and I can do this. You didn't know what was going to happen. But I anyone agree. in crisis that knows what they're doing knew that it was going to get worse. And that was a poor decision. He also said he's going to have more senior executives of color coming into his firm. I've already been asked by the media. My response to that is, I'll believe it when I see it. And when he does it, in the dozens, you just let 390 people go. You're going to hire dozens of people soon. In the dozens, I look for them to be executives of color. That is exactly my observation. I found it very interesting that he made that statement about hiring leaders of color on the same day that he announced the big layoffs. And I have to question the timing of that. Well, I know that there are some people, there's only a few of color who have been whispering in his ear that he needed to do more. So I don't want to poo-poo that. But the timing is a crisis decision. Right. You're going to hit with another issue if you didn't include that. Mm -hmm. So I'm not, look, Mm -hmm. I care about him. He's my friend. He's cared about me in the past. He's been there and asked questions about my health and other things in the past. But we need to hold each other accountable. Ironically, biblically, like iron on iron and steel on steel to sharpen us to be better. 
not by being a friend when you're really a colleague sitting at the table. A friend would say, hey, are you sure you want to do that? A friend would say, hey, let me tell you why you got in trouble when you had a picture taken of 200 people over your shoulder and there were interns and there were only three of color. Do you take the photo down? No, that's not the answer. The answer is fix it. Mm-hmm. Fix it. Yeah, I'm on a board right now, a nonprofit board. I'm in a more rural community just outside of Knoxville, but we have a big diversity issue. And I had actually some memorandum with the leaders just about a month ago to say we need to put out an open call for members of the community to raise their hands and tell us if they want to serve with us and make sure it's clear that all are welcome. And we need to also make purposeful outreach to various thought leaders and whether it's- I would, just, I would just welcome them in, Mary Beth. Yeah. And to, to all of you who are thinking about doing more, here's the answer. Right. When people say they don't know what we do, I say, let me ask a couple questions. Did you ever invite a school in your community who has public relations or journalism and communications as a major, especially mm-hmm. more of them or kids of color, just to come to your open house at your firm? Did you ever have outreach to a local civil rights organization or a church? Can you help us get the word out that we want more people working in our profession? We have some internships. Did you ever ask, can we be a part of career day that you have at your organizations to have people come in and speak? If the answer is no, and you do it for other affinity groups. It's a problem. Right? Yep. There's an NYU group, mostly white. There's a this group, there's a that group, there's a PRSA. I believe you. They don't know because you didn't invite them in. And here's another big example. We love to take people out of the White House in communications or the press secretary or deputy and make them an executive vice president or senior vice president of global corporate communication for a Fortune 10 company. And they've never done anything with financial communications or IR. They've never done business, BC, D2C, D2B communications ever. They know politics, but we feel that they can learn on the job, mostly white men, to do the job. So then I said, okay, for 25 years I've been saying this. Do the same model. You know that Obama was in office for not four years, eight years, right? You know there were more professionals of color in our profession than any White House administration in history. Right? Many of them are black women, powerful, well educated, budgets in the millions that they were managing, employees in the hundreds. I told this to one person. I won't embarrass him by saying what his name is. And he said, Oh, I need a VP in my Atlanta office. You think that one of those people would be a good person for that? I said, Maybe if they ran your entire Georgia operation. Why did you just hear me say what I said? And you went VP in the Atlanta office. The average VP has four to five years experience at a school. I just told you they have P&L responsibility in the millions and dozens of affinity groups report to them. If you're the director of communications for the labor department, if you're the director of communications for just small business, if you're the director of communications for healthcare, what are you talking about? Mm-hmm. But if I told you that and showed you a picture of the white guy in the seat, you would have never given that answer. That's privilege, prejudice, racism, straight out. 
-hmm. And it happens every day. Mm -hmm. You see us as other, it's wrong. Then I go down further with the power of those interns at 18 who are now in their 20s and 30s and 40s and are leaders of color who work for every major city in America. You don't have to pay for the list. Google it. If you see the press secretary sitting next to the mayor and she's a black woman or a black man or a Latino person, freaking recruit them. You don't have to pay the recruitment fee. This time might have been up a year ago or this year. The people I know, and I know most of them that were in the Obama administration go, Mike, they never called us. And by the way, we weren't waiting around. Some of us started our own lobbying groups. Some of us got hired by some of the top lobbying groups in Washington. Some of us went into corporate America on our own. We're not waiting for PR firms to call us. They should have. They didn't. They should have been recruiting me a year or two in for when I got out four years later. They don't treat us equally. We're not waiting. We'll create our own wealth. We know our worth. So when you say you can't find them, trust me, they're out there. And they're good. Such an excellent point. And Mike, thank you so very much for taking time with us today. It has really meant a lot to us to be able to hear from you, to hear your story. And I mean, for you to share just so many of these nuggets of wisdom, we're going to try to get this edited out to where we can be pushing out all of these different content points out in social with your permission. Absolutely. And I'd love to end with this. You hear an edge in my voice. I'm in pain for a lot of different reasons. I'm disappointed in my industry. I'm disappointed in the business community. I'm disappointed in my country. I'm disappointed in our leaders. I'm educated enough to know the difference between right and wrong and have the due diligence and intel and research as to what should be. I know where there are excellent people to work and do the jobs. I know that there are some people, call me an ageist, that need to retire from boards in our industry that need to retire as CEO in our industry, that need to retire as a C-suite member or a practice head in our industry. You can't say that you're going to hire more, but you're still here. And I'm not talking about the people that day-to-day have amazing value and are open-minded to the world. I'm talking about people who are not only not open-minded to people of color, they're not open-minded to technology. They're saying things like we're going back to the office and everything's going to be okay. No one wants to go back to the office. Even an older white man, and I have many that are friends, who are honest with me to say, I finally learned how to use the technology and you want me to leave it? I'm comfortable. That extra hour and a half to three hours of commuting time for some, it's in my life. I can get up later. I can spend more time with my family. Or I can put an extra two and a half hours or three hours for you. But you're uncomfortable at being home. You left your relationship with your wife. You're not bonding at home. You want to run away and your kids and life. That's the truth. There have been virtual and remote businesses in all categories in the world for decades. I can't believe we're seeing white papers and blogs and and podcasts and Zooms about how are we going to be virtual? Old idea. That's as old as I just want to put a white paper together about integrated marketing communication. We've been doing it for 30 years. What are you talking about? Come on board the rest of the world. Yeah, You're behind. Travel and learn what others are doing better. 
not trying to copy other people's ideas and pretending that they're new. They're not. So when I heard a CEO say, hey, we're in the pandemic, everyone's a crisis counselor now. I said, no, you're not. <laughs> oh, Mike, I can't believe you said that. What are you talking about? I'm defending our profession. I'm defending my expertise. I'm defending everyone that works in crisis communications. It's like somebody saying, hey, we're doctors. We can be nurses too. We're going to do it all. No, you can't. Nurses group better speak up and say, what are you talking about? Yeah, I'm angry because there's a lot of stupidity, lack of educated thought, lot, lot of regurgitation of old ideas, and most importantly, not enough love to people that are others. So I'm going to tell you the unvarnished truth. I'm going to tell you you need to do more, not less. I need to tell you that you need to treat us like your family. And if you don't treat your family well, treat us better than your family. We exist, we're educated, we're ready to do the job. We're ready to take your job or be your peer. Are you comfortable with that? No. Then we're going to have to apply more pressure based on evidence and truth and ability, transparency and accountability to make it happen. Because I don't think it's going to be a kumbaya, everyone be friendly and hold their hands, to have revolutionary change, which is what we need, to be seen as equal in this lifetime before my son is my age. And I think to sum it all up, what you said about loving people and loving people as your family, if we all did that, then we wouldn't have any of these issues. I mean, it just comes down to love at the end of the day. It seems pretty simple if we could just get it. And it's as direct as I mentioned. If you can see with your eyes closed, your son or daughter or nephew or cousin or yourself marrying the person that you are talking to without going, then we're on the right track. If you go, well, let's not go that far. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Or in your mind, you say, well, he's a good black. You know, there's a lot of guys that aren't. And even Mike, I'm not so sure I'd be comfortable. Man, I wasn't brought up that way. Oh, I actually moved out of the city to go to the suburbs, not because the trees were pretty, but to be alone and have more people like me, not to be diverse. Why didn't you work on the city if you loved it there? I mean, I had friends that told me when I was preteen, yeah, we're moving because not that you guys are bad. You know, you're one of the first in the neighborhood, but a lot of, there are a lot of people moving in here now, man. My father's property value is going to go down. I feel that like it was, I was nine. I said, Mom, my good friend Tom just told me this is what his family thinks. Maybe he wasn't always just a good friend. Maybe, I don't understand. It just blew my mind apart. Only a couple of years within the age of reason to, to hear your friend say that. And then others left too. The property value didn't go down, by the way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. These are upper middle class people of color moving into the neighborhood, improving it like the stats I gave you for diversity for our profession or business. One third better, not less. Mm -hmm. Why? Because some of you are hurting me in your jobs right now. Some of you need to retire or some of you are forced to retire. Then who's taking over that house after you? especially as you're spreading a mist of hate that this whole community now isn't worthy of investing in. And then the people that come in that you lied about added value. 
one of the reasons why there's added value is, oh, it's not just you that's buying it now. People other than you are coming in and buying it. Well, yeah, that's what we were trying to stop because we, we were told that was bad. Yeah, I'm, I'm telling you the data. The data is it's going up. And part of the reason why it's going up is it's opening up to other communities who never thought they could live here. Because mm-hmm. they believe that lie, too. It's amazing the things we tell ourselves. And then when the evidence comes back different, do we accept it? Well, I am very much looking forward to a lot of our different audiences being able to connect with this wisdom. And Mike, thank you again. I really, really appreciate this. And we're going to continue following you and let's stay connected going forward, truthfully. And there again, anytime that you're in the Knoxville area, please let us know. Thanks so much. So definitely follow me on Twitter at ReputationDR for Reputation Doctor. I'm also on LinkedIn. I'm also on Facebook. Happy to keep in touch, and we'll we'll continue to follow these issues as well as anything that I can help you guys with. Please let me know. Thank you so much. Thank Take you care. so much. You're awesome. Take care. Thanks for joining us on Misinterpreted Public Relations Demystified. You can keep up with the latest on the podcast at FletcherMarketingPR.com and on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll see you next time.